Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Welcome very much to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. I'm excited for our guest today, Nabi Pile. Um, she is a former United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, and over the course of her storied career, she has acted as a defense attorney for anti-apartheid activists. She was appointed as acting judge on the South African High Court, uh, and in the same year was also elected to the United Nations General Assembly to be a judge on the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, where she served for a total of eight years, the last four of which she was the president. She also played a critical role in the ICTR's groundbreaking jurisprudence on rape as genocide, as well as on issues of freedom of speech and hate propaganda. And in 2003, she was appointed as a judge on the International Criminal Court in The Hague, where she served in the appeals chamber until August of 2008. Uh, in South Africa, as a member of the Women's National Coalition, she contributed to the inclusion of equality uh, or an equality clause in the country's constitution that prohibits discrimination on grounds of race, gender, religion, or sexual orientation. She also co-founded Equality Now, an international women's rights organization, and has been involved with other organizations working on issues relating to children, detainees, victims of torture uh, and of domestic violence, and a range of economic, cultural, and social issues. Navi, welcome. Thank you very much, Kristen. Uh, this is a very exciting experience. I can't see students, but I know they're there. <laughs> yes, we have a we have a wide audience. It's been it's been very interesting these these teas. Um, let's start with I think a threshold question. So we we have built this talk as human rights in a pandemic. Um, and certainly, uh, not only in the United States but around the world, there have been a lot of conversations about what the government can or cannot tell people to do and how that impacts their rights. Um, so maybe we start with the threshold of do emergency orders and quarantines necessarily violate human rights? Yes, unfortunately they do. This is why we all oppose the, the emergency and emergency laws and why we all support the rule of law because the rule of law protects human rights. Uh, and em emergencies deviate, they derogate from the rule of law. But many countries have now declared disaster or emergency situations, and they have adopted confinement and other restrictions that may restrict human rights and freedoms of speech, assembly, and movement. Uh, so therefore, generally speaking, there is a risk of human rights violations when the authorities give themselves powers outside the rule of law. But in the case of the COVID pandemic, we all accept that these extraordinary emergency measures are needed to safeguard us 
against this killer virus. And all of us are not, well, none of us is immune to this virus and the virus doesn't respect borders. Uh, the, uh, so st states can take these uh, measures, e even international law allows it, but international law uh, has safeguards built in. So if we look at, for instance, the uh, Covenant on Economic and Social Rights, Article 4, sets out the conditions, namely that the measures are necessary to combat the public health crisis. So the measures are reasonable and proportionate and are lifted as soon as they are no longer necessary in protecting public health. So those are the immediate safeguards. It has to be necessary, proportionate, and temporary. And I would add, they have to be, these measures have to be based on scientific evidence. There must be wide consultation of all stakeholders, including civil societies and local communities to this response. And it must be grounded on protection of human rights, uh, of all uh, upholding the interest, intrinsic right of every human being, leaving no one behind. So many, many of the complaints are about this. A, we're not consulted. Two, some of these measures are, are overreaching and do not make sense. And uh, we don't trust the data. We don't trust this authoritarian process. Uh, these are many complaints. So can I just jump in? I'm speaking, as you know, from Durban, South Africa. So, yeah, so yesterday the minister announced all these measures on what businesses can sell since we're entering into winter. He named the items, all right, you can only buy or sell these winter clothing. And back came the question, well, can we sell T-shirts? Because people wear T-shirts inside the winter clothing. Oh, all right, you can sell T-shirts. Yeah, well, can we sell open uh, shoes or must they be closed shoes? So. This is a ridiculous level where there is micromanagement on mm -hmm. the part of the executive. And this is not my idea of consultation and getting people on board and having your measures be reasonable. Yep, so it sounds as if there's a balance. So in general, if I'm, I'm gonna re rephrase what you said a little bit. So yes, these rules do limit some human rights, but there is a, a recognition that at least some level at this point, there are some guidelines that are necessary to help stop the spread of the disease and help curtail it. And so what we need to be careful of is going back to sort of the four principles that you mentioned, are they, are they reasonably tied to that protection effort? Are they not um, overly broad? Um, are they, or is the public aware of them or has there been some sort of consultation about it? And that they're not, I think, not targeting any one particular group or one particular um, uh, uh, business or a group of people that, that seems to disadvantage them. Yeah, are they necessary to protect human rights? Gotcha, okay. So yeah, so that level of specificity that you were just mentioning seems, you know, to perhaps be a step too far as, a, as opposed to, yes, shops can now open and maybe you need to um, just be mindful of how many people are in the store kind of, kind of guideline. Um, so, uh, so we talked about, um, about those kind of rules. There also have been certainly, um, in the U S and I've seen reports from around the world about how, um, 
how people who have contracted the coronavirus, um, one, are being treated, and then also separately how what governments are doing in order to be able to trace their whereabouts or trace whom they've come in contact with. Um, why don't we talk about that in regards to, to human rights, the impact on privacy and, and, and that? Well, uh, during the discussions in the Human Rights uh, Council in uh, April on COVID and human rights, this was the focus that there should not be an invasion of the right to privacy and there should not be a derogation from freedom of speech. There was much concern with the fact that journalists or critics, civil society, who have commented or criticized these pandemic measures in certain countries are being harassed, threatened, thrown out in some cases, even detained. So that's, that's about the worst scenario. Mm -hmm. And speakers highlighted this in specific country situations. That has to end. Now, with regard to contact uh, tracking, you know, we're all concerned about that and the later use of this technology uh, to suit uh, these, these kind of governments who want much more out of our private lives. Here, states must ensure that any use of surveillance and technical tools to track the spread of the virus is limited in purpose and duration and must abide by the strictest protections and must only be made available under the national laws that are consistent with international standards. So that's important, not just any law, but they must be uh, compliant with international standards. And that is the guarantees of the individual's right to privacy must be preserved, that's one. There must be non-discrimination, protection of journalists, sources, and other freedoms must be rigorously protected. Uh, How do we handle that within the realm of, obviously there are different types of government across the world. Um, and so how, how, what ability does each nation have for its own sovereign determination in something like that? Or are these more universal um, rights and so need to perhaps, you know, I'm thinking of some authoritarian regimes um, that this is, you know, this is a challenge for them. The, the recognition of this, this right to privacy is not in their interest. It's not, not how they operate. Yes, so that's why I welcome the discussion among states themselves. First, they have to undertake that obligation to respect the international standard. And that was done when the resolution was adopted before the Human Rights Council. So all states were there. They undertook that they will observe the standards even in uh, uh, tracking, uh, contact tracking for, for this and, and for future use. However, we have to be realistic enough to know that it's happening. There are countries, why else would they shut their journalists mm -hmm. out why else would they not be transparent about statistics and so on? They could keep so much away from us. And so there I always look at discussions such as this, robust discussions that flesh these uh, risks out. I uh, respect activism on the part of civil society. Now civil society is very resilient and vigilant on these issues. Uh, so they, they come up with the facts. I've looked at some of the websites of some of the main NGOs. 
international services for human rights, for instance, they name the countries, they name individuals wow. uh, who, who, are, who are deviating from the standards. So they are a wonderful source of monitoring implementation. Media, of course, is our number one source. This is why we have to ensure that media is not restricted in any way from reporting the facts to us. Mm -hmm. And so for the journalists and the, the NGOs who are bringing to light those who are perhaps not abiding by, by, these, by these rules and these guidelines, what are possible next courses of action? Well, firstly, we have to uh, make the violation public and demand their release. I know of two cases where they were deported, right? Russia has deported a foreign journalist, Egypt has. Burundi has deported four uh, UN officials who are working on this pandemic. So firstly, we keep track and then we demand that they stop this harassment and restriction, which is what uh, human, rights human rights activists are doing all over the world. And we call on the support of our other governments. Uh, naming and shaming and exposing these uh, violations I think is important because some of these countries are dependent on aid and, and assistance from uh, other countries and this should be one of the conditions that you cannot violate the uh, human rights standards when you are uh, monitoring ordinary people under the guise of COVID infections. That makes sense to tie it to, it's sort of a carrot and stick in that instance of you tie it to something that they need in the hopes of, of changing the behavior that you wish to change. Yeah, although I should say, Kristen, when I was High Commission for Human Rights, there was, you know, I was in 78 countries personally, and you see things on the ground. And so you do not easily call upon states to tie in human rights conditions with their aid, because I could see for myself that that would adversely impact people on the ground. You know, you can't say don't give country a uh, food because that the government is bad, yes. Right. So with that caution, I would say it isn't still the stick to use to ensure against violations of, uh, of people's fundamental freedoms. Yeah, no, that makes that that makes sense. Yes, you don't want to exacerbate the problem or exacerbate other problems while you're trying to to change or solve this problem. Um, yeah. Let's um, talk about perhaps some of the groups who might be disproportionately impacted um, at this. So I know you have done a lot of or you're a tireless advocate for women and girls. Um, so let's start with, you know, are there instances where females might be disproportionately affected during this pandemic? Oh, yes. You're looking at one, older persons. <laughs> so, yeah. So last week I signed this campaign document that reached me from Italy, uh, calling for protection of the elderly. And I read it through and I thought, yes, I can see that happening in many states where they place the elderly 
uh, at the bottom of the line in respect of medications, hospitalizations, and so mm -hmm. on. In fact, some governments have told the elderly, elderly, don't try to come to the hospital because we are treating younger people first. Mm -hmm. And so this campaign has said, you know, the elderly have contributed so much to society. And now they're dependent on the state for services and uh, food and other and, and their health. Don't let them down now. So I thought that was a good document. Yes, absolutely. I, I recall reading some news stories coming out of Italy and even New York City yeah. that, that were explaining sort of the how they might be prioritizing patients and patient care. So yes, yeah. I can there's, there's even a, a cynical articulation that the elderly are prone to die anyway of the virus. So why invest good money on their well-being? The focus should be on saving the lives of younger persons. So what we find is that they are now abandoned in high-risk institutions. Mm. And uh, in developing countries such as my country, they're, they're really in a poorly condition in terms of medical food supply. But above all, no visits from their families. Um, so the United Nations Independent Expert on the Rights of Older Persons has warned that social distancing must not become social exclusion and that decisions on healthcare must be made on medical needs and not on non-medical criteria such as age or disability. Mm -hmm. That's another group that they put at the bottom of the line, persons with disabilities. Yes, yes. yes. And is, that, is, is the, the, the uh, resolution you were just talking about binding universally? Is it just for people who have signed on to it? Is it just a guideline? What, you know, what, what sort of force and effect does this have? Oh, no. These are the actions, I said, that civil society is taking. Yes. Oh, gotcha. It's, okay, thank you. It spreads widely. Why? because of social media, WhatsApp and all these others, now millions get to hear about it. And governments get very worried when civil society gathers in huge numbers like that. Mm -hmm. But however, you mentioned women. Yes, everybody's concerned about the fate of women. They've always been in a vulnerable situation. They already have, are disadvantaged in communities. Um, and so they're likely to bear the brunt of the worst effects uh, of the virus uh, because they not only fall into the vulnerable group in peace times, but also in conflict times. Mm -hmm. They are the primary carers of families. They are the ones responsible for securing food, shelter, and health needs. And this happens whether they are in rural areas, growing food in the forest, gathering food, or even rushing to supermarkets, standing in long lines to get the food, getting transport to get there. Um, so we say that they face these stress and deprivations and that women are disproportionately affected. They do bear a heavier burden uh, because they are disadvantaged by the existing socioeconomic position. Hmm. position and they face the heightened risk of gender-based violence. Now I have to mention this because I've also been keeping track of the numbers. The increase of violence against women and children during, in, in homes mm -hmm. has increased astronomically. Yes. And yes, the 
COVID measures ask them to stay locked in with the abuser. The UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls, together with four UN independent experts, have expressed concern at this very likely of increase in rates of widespread domestic violence mm -hmm. uh, as situations of abuse worsen considerably in cases of lockdowns, they say. Worse because there are no or fewer shelters, worse because there's no help service, community support, or police protection. Mm -hmm. And among this group of women, those who are at even higher risk are LGBTI women, women with disabilities, and of course, undocumented migrants and victims of trafficking. Of course. Are there so recommendations for yeah. ways to mitigate some of these challenges? Um, or, you know, you know, obviously not an easy solution since the ultimate uh, guideline is try not to leave your house. So, you know, what, what are some of the ways that this can be addressed? Yeah. So what we say is, please don't use the COVID 19 virus as an excuse to suspend these essential protection services for women and children who are being battered in their homes. They have so all the safeguards have to be maintained. They have to have access to protection orders, to advice officers, to hotlines, and they have to have access to safe shelters. The state now has to provide these shelters and especially as I mentioned that they include traffic, trafficked women and mm -hmm. migrant women and LGBTI women. Absolutely. So uh, as, as you know, we are obviously recording this a little bit in advance of, of Thursday. Uh, we are, it's Monday, uh, May 18th, um, because tea time for me is actually fairly late in the evening for you. Um, and so not an ideal tea time for you. Um, and so we had asked people to submit some questions in advance of, of our chat today. And I, I actually did get a number of questions regarding human trafficking um, and its relation to human rights and uh, sort of, you know, uh, what are people seeing? Um, is this, although with the restrictions on movement, is there a concern that human trafficking will be increasing during this time because that monitoring might not be as, as prevalent as well? Oh yes, I think we, sh we we all experiencing increased levels of violence during this time because law enforcement is occupied elsewhere. You know, they're busy arresting people for not wearing a mask. Yeah, in our country, they were about to arrest a child for wandering onto the beach sand because you can walk along on the promenade, but not on the beach. So they're busy with other things, right? Important and otherwise. Uh, and so there's an increased level of crime. In fact, just before the lockdown, I was in London where there were the stabbing of uh, Asians. Mm -hmm. So that was xenophobic attacks against Chinese and similar attacks, I think, and, and knife stabbings in the United States. Here, there's a great deal of violence. Unfortunately, in my province here alone, 24 schools have been burned and all the equipment stolen. So that's why I would expect that the criminals will take advantage of it. There's a great deal of uh, uh, illicit trading in, in tobacco and liquor, for instance. And mm -hmm. illicit trading in tobacco, alcohol, is always accompanied by 
trafficking in, in women and traffic and labor trafficking because they it's a, almost the same actors and they use the same funding. Gotcha. I had not I had not considered that those pathways would be that similar for for I mean goods and people make sense, but the fact that it's tied specifically to tobacco and alcohol and then human trafficking as well. Um, I guess if you have found a route that enables you to skirt the law, then pretty much anything can pass through that that route. Mm. That's interesting. We had a tea a couple of weeks ago with um, Professor Robert Tsai, where we were talking about the impact on uh, people of Asian descent by virtue of calling this the China virus. And so some of some of what that has, some of the, as you mentioned, the stabbing, some of the other, you know, spittings, um, general verbal assaults, um, in addition to physical assaults as well, that that has disproportionately impacted um, Asian populations and and non-majority Asian uh, cultures um, as a result. Yes, that, that, that's a fact. Not so much here in my country. You know, we have other major crises arising from poverty and discrimination. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, but, like 40% of the population is unemployed. So we have other challenges. However, I agree, criminality has increased and special steps have to be in place to guard against this. I would say for trafficking, I don't know if you have any questions, it's very important that we put out the information. You know, that you know, I can't tell you the number of cases where there would have been official denials, there were official denials, mm -hmm. until somebody produced some small person had taken a video. So this incident of a child being arrested was captured on video. The authorities were jumped in to deny it, but there's the video footage. So yes. that's how we all have to keep our eyes open for the protection of people at risk of being trafficked. Yes, and then have, have the courage to to share what we are are witnessing as well. So it's uh, it's both the keeping track and then actually taking that step forward of I saw this and this isn't right. Yes, and we and we. If, putting it forward because we want protection. You yes. see, we want protection for those individuals. Many, many times the authorities, well, of course they're preoccupied with this crisis, but they also are very concerned with the image of the country. They don't mm -hmm. like any bad news going out there. Mm -hmm. Continually praise ourselves. And that's not the role of human rights activists. And we all in the, in the COVID crisis have become human rights activists. Absolutely. Because if something happens to some victim, that touches all of us. Absolutely. Well, and because as, as I think we have um, heard before, you, the protection of sort of the weakest of your group is, is often only the first step. Because if you're not stopping things when they start, then that can escalate. And so it's, you know, it's, it's coming, coming for different groups that you thought were protected until all of a sudden it's perhaps your group. So um, easier to nip it in the bud. Um, and that's why one reason why we should all be aware, uh, you know, the fact that it's not impacting me directly in this instance doesn't make it, doesn't make my concern, um, any less necessary, um, because I, I, and everyone needs to be vigilant about, about this. Yes. And, and we all adopted these standards of human rights protection and states have undertook obligations to implement those standards. So we often say states are the duty bearers here mm -hmm. and we, the public, 
are the rights holders. We can demand that they fulfill their obligation. Mm -hmm. But you put it very nicely. Yes, something happening in the, in the remotest area is of concern to all of us. Thank you. So you had mentioned um, perhaps some particular challenges that South Africa and other developing nations are experiencing that um, for those of us in, in the first world nations, we might not be aware of. So could you, could you explain that a little bit more as well? Well, for instance, if you ask me, of course, we all have complaints about being locked in your homes, but it's pathetic to complain about the fact that uh, you know, you can't go to the shops or you, you can't go to a hairdresser, for instance. When you have situations as here and in Africa and many parts of Asia, the number one problem is poverty. Mm -hmm. And so you see millions, 14 million uh, people in South Africa unemployed and I think 10 million are on social grants. The social grants in this country are about like $30 a month. Wow. So That's even those grants, yeah, they shouldn't be token, but what can developing countries do? They're limited by budgets and so on. Mm -hmm. and so you will not complain when you see, as, as we do on television, lines of poor people, elderly people on crutches, they're standing in long lines, waiting to access the, uh, you know, a supermarket or waiting to access the social grants office and at the end of the day being turned away because there was not enough money or the computer's not working. Mm -hmm. Now I see after, uh, after this was uh, seen on media, they put chairs and so on for the elderly. So that's the other thing about when, when the public sees this and is conscious stricken, then the authorities act to be more humane in their, in their methods. So that it's such a challenge, and I think this is why I so much support the fact that there must be global action. No single country can solve this problem. And this is why even now, as I did as High Commissioner for Human Rights, I think there's an obligation on rich countries to help uh, provide medical equipment and extra food to developing countries. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and in the last few weeks, I feel as if we have seen a number of guidelines. They tend to come out regionally, but they, they speak to each other. Um, so the Secretary General of the Council of Europe issued a toolkit regarding human rights um, in the U.S. I guess a little over a week ago, almost two weeks ago, we had two um, laws that have been introduced, uh, which authorize funds for programs that support democratic institutions and defenders of human rights. Um, and I think they also require the State Department and USAID to monitor um, responses to the pandemic and, and counter attacks. Um, and then the Africa Commission on Human and People's Rights has also issued a number of statements. Um, in those, they seem to tend to be more expressing concern over some of the things that they are seeing um, in the African, on the African continent and, and some of the rights that are being infringed. Actually, uh, South Africa also has received assistance from reports I've read from the United States. Um, the US ambassador announced this, uh, a gift of ventilators that this country is short of. Now that other countries like South Sudan, I understand, has just one ventilator. Wow. Uh, 
sector. So you, you just can't compare uh, the lack of resources with that uh, oversupply of, of resources. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I would like uh, the authorities to address the needs of, the, of people like this on the ground, to address the needs of the numbers rather than whether you can buy uh, open sandals or clothes, shoes, you know, these are the middle class concerns. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's one thing the pandemic seems to have made even more stark is yeah. that resource um, limitation, uh, you know, and sort of the, the separation between those who who have the means and the capability and the resources to come through this, not unscathed, but not as damaged as those who are without those resources. Yeah. You yeah. know, my, my president, President Ramaphosa, has been praised, he's even been praised by the US president for mm -hmm. jumping into the situation and taking charge so soon. And part of the reason is that he has so much support. There is so much cooperation and solidarity amongst the people. So that's why it's working. But these initiatives need much more support. This is not the time for a country to say, you know, my country first, mm -hmm. my people first, yeah. Well, and that groundswell of support as well from the people um, you know, so it's not just the top down, it's also you, the, those being affected, impacted and saying, maybe we don't like this, but we understand why it's happening, or we need you to take some action and we are willing to put up with some of the discomfort or, or challenges that come along with that. Yes, people have for two months, kept their children indoors, kept themselves out of work, not... Can you imagine everybody here is reliant on that salary and they with and they are without it. Businesses have lost massively. Mm -hmm. uh, so that has happened in every country where there has been a lockdown. Um, the country has raised funds. That's the other thing that there's been huge generosity on the part of the public. They've given money for this because you can't bear to see people without food. Then there are levels and levels of accusations of corruption in the distribution of that food. Yeah, human nature is there as well. Yep. Um, so as I was saying, no state can solve this problem by unilateral uh, action and protection only of their own population, because this is a, a global problem. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's Support for multilateralism. Now you just mentioned the European Union and their statement. Yes, huge support for multilateralism from world leaders. And appeals have been addressed for this approach by the UN Secretary General, for instance, who's appealed for a stay in conflict, in conflict and attacks during the conflict areas. And, you know, he couldn't get support for such a request at the Security Council. Wouldn't pass a reasonable request like that is can you stop attacking civilians while we're attending to COVID? So that didn't happen. And may I mention also um, the High Commissioner for Human Rights has called for easing of sanctions to help medical systems fight COVID 19. And these calls are crucial for states like uh, Cuba, Zimbabwe, uh, North Korea. Iran, Venezuela, because once again, I return to my point, it's people who are suffering as a result of these uh, 
sanctions. And the UN experts, there's a UN expert on unilateral coercive measures. And that expert has urged all governments to save lives by lifting all economic sanctions. So as the UN expert on the right to food has appealed for economic sanctions to end to prevent a hunger crisis. So this is at the global uh, level why we, the population, expect them to foster international cooperation and assistance and share information, research, medical equipment. Uh, there is much concern now about a, a country developing a, a vaccine and not sharing that with other countries yes. or not sharing the research. So there must be coordinated action to reduce these uh, social economic impacts. And there should be joint endeavors by all states to ensure effective uh, equitable economic recovery, putting people first, I would say. So, and to go back to what you were saying about the sanctions for a moment, uh, is the argument against not lifting the sanctions really still limited just to not wanting to perhaps open up the door to that behavior continuing or starting up again? Or are there other arguments? Um, or I guess, how developed is that conversation at this point of people requesting the lifting of the sanctions or the end to sanctions and those who are not in favor of that? Well, these are not United Nations sanctions we're talking about. United Nations sanctions, the ones that exist, for instance, on, on nuclear armament and so on with Iran. Yeah, they, they're very specific. These are sanctions introduced unilaterally by rich governments, by certain countries against other countries. Now that affects the people in those countries. They do suffer, but I think the call by all the UN uh, Secretary General and the experts is please, during this time of crisis, we're going to, people are going to starve to their death or they're going to die of this illness if they don't, if you don't lift the sanctions. I think that's an important call and it should be heeded. So the argument is less, we, the argument isn't that they want to do away with the sanctions. The argument is for right now, while we are trying to work through this challenge, this problem, let's not make it harder for people to get the food they need, the resources they need in order to, to, to survive this. And then once we are through this, if you governments who have imposed these sanctions feel as if they are warranted to perhaps be reimposed, let's consider it at that point. Yeah, so that's it, Kristen. You've summarized it properly. It's a humanitarian call to suspend these sanctions now. Mm -hmm. okay. Are you also seeing as a result of this impacts on the judicial system or how, I guess, you know, how is this, you know, obviously the work of the tribunals is still continuing. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment because a, a fairly important uh, event happened this past weekend. Um, but, uh, you know, what, you know, in the U.S. We're, we're experiencing, we're experimenting now with some virtual trials. Obviously the Supreme Court is, uh, is all meeting um, remotely and they've opened up their arguments. So anybody can listen in. Um, what, other, what other impacts are you seeing um, as a result of this and how how might that be playing into human rights it's such a basic right to have access to justice if there's a violation you want to go to court but the courts are now closed they're forced to close 
once again to keep crowds out. Um, my sister is a, is a senior magistrate and they deal with a great deal of cases relating to uh, sexual violence against children, for instance. So even in emergency situation like that, um, she goes to court some days, but otherwise it's the uh, high courts, Supreme Courts, Constitutional Courts are resorting to the electronic media to hold uh, virtual hearings. I suppose they select the more urgent ones, the more COVID-19 restricted ones. There's applications of overreach that some of the measures are not reasonable. Business, I think, has a uh, has come up with the objection. Some one party wants the all the restrictions lifted. You know, mm -hmm. there are level five to level one. We were in five, now in four. Someone wants us to jump to one. So the courts are open for this, and that's very important. I mean, it's it, it's truly alarming to each one of us if we can't seek justice. Mm -hmm. I would say it's temporarily uh, constrained at the moment. I like that the authorities have looked, have responded to the World Health Organization call to limit the number of uh, prisoners, to let them out if possible, and, and countries are doing that because, you know, they've been sentenced by a court, they, they haven't been sentenced to die in prison. Yes. Uh, We're having a conversation in a few weeks. And there too, there's two points of view. The public is concerned if you release a whole lot of people who had been convicted for crime. Of course. Yes. Yep. Yes. And the debate yes. go on and access yes. to justice is important. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. It's a, it, as you mentioned, it is a basic fundamental right um, that, uh, that when you have that sort of, when you have a problem, that there is a way to address it and some recourse. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll tell you what, what concerns me as a former lawyer and judge is, you know, all justice has to be meted out in public. So they have to be public hearings. So you can't have public hearings now. You're holding, or, it, yeah, you're holding it. There's a modification to what public means at this point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the public is the risk and they are at risk. Also. Yes. <laughs> well, and I touched on this just a little bit. So um, over the weekend, um, Felician Kabuga, who created the Hutu militias and helped finance the Rwandan genocide, if I'm characterizing that correctly, he was arrested in Paris. Um, and this is more than 20 years after the ICTR began its work. And I believe that you told me you signed his indictment originally. Hmm. I think I signed the indictment because I was the first judge to sign those first indictments, very early days. Now, the uh, tribunal, the Rwanda tribunal uh, has come to an end, but they set up, the Security Council set up a mechanism, and Serge Bramertz is the uh, person in charge, and I think he, I, I know that he was pursuing suspects, even I had given up, so 23 years after the genocide, looks like Serge got the help of the French government. Yes. So that in, in all these endeavors, you need international support to further the cause of justice. Uh, and someone who's alleged to be implicated to such an extent, almost like he's the person who funded uh, this genocide, the radio station, the machetes, he bought all those machetes. Those are the allegations. No matter how old he is or how 
distant it is from the uh, occurrence of the crime, it's important that justice is done. Absolutely, and as you as you mentioned, that that international cooperation was certainly critical to making this happen. Yes. Right. However, did I recall to you? Yeah. Uh, Yes, maybe in our earlier conversation, that the United States played a wonderful role in trying to arrest Buga in Nairobi, because I was right the next door in the court at uh, Tanzania, and we followed these events. They got so close to him, the, the uh, security personnel from the US, and they were supposed to grab him at a me house meeting with the businessman. Instead, Somebody must have informed, and I think there were one or two people were killed there in that attempt. Uh, it was just too sad. I felt it because it was very fresh in my mind at that time. And Absolutely. so there you are, the long arm of the law will catch you sometimes. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, think, I think the articles I were reading mentioned that he had eluded capture twice before. Um, and oh. so one of those was probably the, the one you just mentioned. They didn't go into details for those. Um, but yes, you know, we, we had Jim Johnson on a couple of weeks ago and talking about um, the tribunals in general. And some, you know, I, I don't think some people realize just how long some of these have been going on. Um, and you're right, while sort of the main part of the ICTR has, has closed, there are these residual mechanisms that are still coming behind and, and continuing the work. So I think great wisdom on the part of the Security Council to establish these residual mechanisms. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Navi, those are all of the questions that we had. I really appreciate you taking the time to have tea with me today. I am having a rooibos tea in honor of South Africa. Um, <laughs> I've been trying to make my teas thematic. So, uh, so rooibos made sense since you are in South Africa. Um, but uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks so much. Next time you owe me, you do owe me a cup of tea. I will. I will happily pay that debt. In fact, I have not been to South Africa yet. And so perhaps I will bring the tea to you. Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Kristen, thank you so much for doing this, but also for the, you know, outreach in educating people that the Robert Jackson Center is, is doing. I, I was surprised when you called me because I'm busy doing some other work for wildlife. We've got to watch out for wildlife and all the poaching that's going on. So I was busy doing that. And I thought, do I want to have a tea conversation? And I thought, uh, without hesitation, of course I will, uh, because I've been there to the center and I do admire the work you're doing. Congratulations on your assumption of the presidency. Thank you very much. Yes, I have just completed my first year. So it's uh, certainly the last couple of months have been very interesting, but it's been it's been an amazing first year. And you know, I should probably tell our audience, I met you at the International Humanitarian Law Roundtable last August at Chautauqua, which was my first experience with with that, with hearing those conversations and and really starting to get a grasp of all of the work that goes into that and the questions that people are still wrestling with um, and that you provided the keynote address for for that last year. And that was just, um, it was an amazing talk. Um, and just, I, I admire you so much. So thank you very much for, for taking the time. All right, thank you, Kristen. And my best wishes to your audience. Thank you very much, Navi.
You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you.